Today on the Og Blog Podcast, thrills, chills, spills, no, of course not, just books. After all, I'm Nat Gertler, the Og Blogger, the guy who's collected over 1,000 Peanuts and Schultz-related books. I am blatantly a collector. And where you have collectors, you will have things being made for collectors, including books being made for collectors, books about collecting, books about your collection. Over the years, there have been a number of books specifically on collecting peanut stuff. They do not tend to be deep prose tomes questioning the collector mentality, its hoarding instinct, its rampant consumerism, its obsession with completion and pristineness and authenticity. No, actually, these books are there to celebrate these things. They are collector's guides. They're there to tell you what there is to collect, to rub into you that you're missing some items, and to drive your lust with pretty, pretty pictures of the things you ain't got. They are the devil's workshop. Oh, and they'll help you identify the things you have. And one more thing. They'll tell you how much it's worth. That's actually the problem that I have with most collector's guides, is the values. For one thing, it's an ill-defined concept in most situations. Is it how much someone who is likely to have it is likely to sell it for? Many old items aren't in the hands of those who have some special knowledge of the market. Is it how much someone is willing to pay for it? That varies from person to person on the item. A $1,000 vase is only a $1,000 vase when you have both someone willing to buy it for $1,000 and someone willing to sell it at that cost. Although, at least with peanuts items, you're talking about mass-produced items in general. I've seen attempts to do price guides for original art, where each piece is unique and the only time you can set an actual factual value is when a specific piece changes hands, and even then, that's just the value at that exact moment. Now, I come from the world of comic books, and comic books very much lend themselves to collecting. They are mass-produced items, generally in numbered series with recognizable elements. And as with other standard collectibles, stamps and coins and such, there's grown to be a standard set of measures for condition. Comic books have a 10-point scale, and while there can be arguing over whether a given copy is an 8 or an 8.5, an 8 a 6 and an 8 a 10. And all that sort of number setting has made value very trackable and discussable. There is one key price guide in the comic book universe updated annually, and they work with a large base of comic book specialty retailers to see what price things are being sold for and what price things are being offered for. And even then, there have been accusations of gamesmanship, that the people behind the guides have at times listed low values for comic books that they are personally seeking, so that people would price them based on the guide and they would be able to buy a bargain and that they then set high prices on books that they actually have, so that they can sell them at a large profit. Because that's the thing with price guides. They don't just reflect the prices, they set the prices. A comic shop purchasing a collection of old comics will use the price guide to evaluate what the collection is worth, and will use it again in pricing the comics for sale. They may vary from the prices listed, thinking that for some reason they could get more for a given book or turn over another book more quickly by keeping the price lower than the guide, but their valuation is almost always going to be based around the guide. Well, unless it's something where there is a new reason for an increased price. Uh, the release of the movie Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse certainly saw comic book retailers jacking up the prices on any appearances that they had of Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham, a pig superhero parody character who made his first appearance in 1983. Uh, by the way, that movie? Very pretty movie. Very, very pretty. You hear that from me. And that's an effect that Peanuts price guides will have as well. Certainly antiques and collectible dealers often have a number of guides on hand to get a sense of the pricing of items. Looking at the Peanuts price guides in my collection as a whole, their idea of value is likely set on 
very few sales of the specific items. There just isn't that large base of dealers processing information the way there is with comic books. And the whole question of how you make a fair valuation? Well, I was once approached to write a collector's guide to Peanuts books, and I ended up turning it down because while I would be glad to make a collector's guide, listing what was available, explaining what was special, helping to identify individual items, I had no interest in creating a price guide. And the price guide aspect, I was told, was a requirement. It's what really sells these books. But there's a lot of good to be had in these Peanuts Collectibles books, with identifying items and with pictures. The earliest one in my collection, and I think it may be the first mass-published one, is the Official Price Guide to Peanuts Collectibles. Now that sounds like an impressive name until you realize that the term official is meaningless here. There's no such thing as an official price in this context. Actually, official here is a trademark. A company called the House of Collectibles has a line of the official price guides. And because they got a trademark, no one else can call their price guides for anything the official one. Well, that's not to say that this isn't a good, solid book. It's written by Freddie Margolin and Andrea Podley, both respected names in the Peanuts collecting community. And it's got an introduction by Charles Schultz himself. This book came out in February of 1990. The back cover celebrates the 40th anniversary of Peanuts. Uh, This one is mostly in black and white. Over 300 pages of black and white and just eight in color. The thing that I like best about this book is that there's a fair amount of text. It has paragraphs of introduction to many of the subsections on different types of goods, and they often take the time to give a few sentences in the item description so you don't just have a title for the item and a price, but a sense of what it is. For example, the description for a Snoopy toy train set is Express Station Set. Snoopy, waving a lantern, rides a locomotive. As the locomotive passes the doghouse station, Woodstock in chimney and Charlie Brown on platform move as the locomotive passes the station. Plastic, Aviva, number 958, 1977, $85 to $110, with an asterisk to let you know that the price is for it in good condition in its original box. As if to balance this, quote, official, unquote, guide, the next oldest guide in the AUG.com reference library is the Unauthorized Guide to Snoopy Collectibles with Values, published in 1997. This one is 160 pages, all full color, with three or four Snoopy items on the typical page. This book, part of the Schiffer Books for Collectors series, was written, I guess compiled might be a more accurate term, by Jan Lindenberger. And they had so much stuff to present that in the same year, Schiffer and Lindenberg put out a second book, More Snoopy Collectibles, which is 10% longer than the first. And then the next year, 1998, they put out a second edition of the first book with updated values. I'm not sure how much activity there had been in the Peanuts market for that year that it needed updating, but there you go. And also in 1998, they put out the book Peanuts Gang Collectibles, the Unauthorized Handbook and Price Guide. The same format, and it still has a lot of Snoopy, but not just Snoopy. And then in 1999, more Peanuts Gang collectibles. And one thing that immediately catches my eye about that last book is the cover, where it's more Peanuts with a registered trademark symbol, that's the R in a circle, Gang with the unregistered trademark symbol, that's the small capital letters TM, collectibles. That's quite a set of trademarks for an unauthorized guide. Just to confuse matters, if you start looking for collectible Peanuts books by Jan Lindenberger, you will find one more that I didn't mention, and that you probably don't want. That's because she did a guide to Planters Peanuts collectibles. You know, the giant lagoon with a top hat and the monocle? Yeah, that. 
I should note that all the Lindenberger Schultz Peanuts books were done with Cher Porges, apparently a big Peanuts collector whose collection they rated for all the photographs. And that sounds like a big collection. There are about 500 items or so in each of these four books. That's a couple thousand Peanuts items, which sounds like a lot. But then you realize that that's not a big dent in all the Peanuts items that have been issued, not just in this country, but around the world. But you realize that a complete guide to everything is, if not impossible, then certainly impractical. And that leads me to what is nice about the last couple of guides in my collection. The wonderful world of Peanuts musicals is not, as one might first hear it, about You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. No, this is about music boxes and things like that. Peanuts items that play sound, that play a song. It is researched and compiled by Pauline C. Graver and published by her as well. And that lets you know what this really is. This is someone who has built a collection and is using this book to share her collection with you. Published in 2003, this book breaks the musicals down into sections by manufacturer. The items are shown in full color, two per page for about 200 pages, each with a simple description, a height measurement, the name of the song it plays, date of issue, original price, and a current value. There's some cool-looking stuff in here, although I kind of wish it had been more aggressive in design. It could have run the photos larger and inset the text into the photos. The most recent book I have in this category is from 2006, and it also focuses on one category of Peanuts items, Peanuts Collectible Ornaments. This is another self-published book, and author-slash-publisher Thomas Bednarik makes it clear that he's not just documenting his collection. He worked with several key collectors to capture their collections as well. As a book, we can either say that Thomas put his all into it, or that the print shop really saw him coming, because this was not the cheapest of print jobs. 432 full-color pages on reasonably heavy paper and a hardcover. Within its narrow category, it aims to be complete, everything from high-end hand-blown glass ornaments to things you pop out from a book and run a string through yourself. It's here. The information is simple. Manufacturer, product number, composition, issue date, and title. Note what I didn't say there. Value. There is no attempt to pass these off as an investment. They are a thing to collect and enjoy having, perhaps enjoy putting on a tree. Nothing more. I respect that. As much as I respect these two self-published efforts, I am not sure to advise creating such a book yourself. Publishing and distribution is tricky, and there's an army of businesses aiming to talk you into hiring their services to help you self-publish. They're almost all better at taking your money rather than at doing anything worthwhile for you. There's a whore that sees your dreams as a way to exploit you. I will say that if you do want to do something like this, consider going with print-on-demand. Really, you can publish a book print on demand with nothing but your own efforts and about $10 to get a sample copy to make sure everything came out. And then when anybody orders them, the book will be printed. I publish a ton of books through Amazon's KDP program, and I'm never going to get stuck with a garage full of books that way. But do have a smart friend, one who is good with language, give your book a look over first. In these two self-published books, one listed an important 1968 date as 1986 due to a typo, the other called its foreword, meaning a preface, a word that comes before the main part of the book. It called it a foreword, like in the direction ahead of you or a basketball position. Foreword and foreword may sound a lot alike, but they look different. Oh, well. 
That's all the real Peanuts Collector's Guide that I have in my collection. Although, while pulling books off of shelves to work on this episode, I discovered I have not one but two copies of more Snoopy collectibles. Maybe I should get rid of the other one. I wonder how much it's worth. Now, before I sign off for this episode, I did have one bit of podcast-related news to share with you. I'm going to be visiting a bit less often, at least for a while. I'm cutting the podcast back to every other week for now. After more than a year of doing this, I've been burning through ideas rather quickly, and it does take up a fair chunk of my time. As much as I love doing it, I have some other personal projects that uh, need my attention. I'll have more information on those when the time comes, probably both here and on the blog. You are following the blog, right? It's at blog.org.com. That's B-L-O-G dot A-A-U-G-H dot com. And there's usually some new peanut book news, review, or insight several times a week. And until next time, may you find that the value of your collectibles is the joy they bring. May you not be so worried about keeping things in pristine condition that you never actually enjoy them. And may all your creeps be good ones.